This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn more about the wonderfully tart Montmorency Cherry at ChooseCherries.com. This week on Meet and 3, we look at how we've adapted to a new normal during the pandemic. From the business of restauranteering and the new habits of composters to learning from the past to prepare for the future, we're exploring what came before and what lies ahead. People in charge of the collections and the acquisitions looked at me and were like, what the hell are you trying to sell me cookery for? These kids are so young and we're teaching them that it's okay to throw out all this food and we have to figure out a way to educate these students to make them, you know, lifelong environmentalists. Tune in to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts for the latest stories in the world of food. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes of Feast Your Ears can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I've been working on a new podcast here at Heritage Radio Network. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We're putting out a new episode about every week, and we'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Today's theme, we're still in a pandemic. It's been more than 100 days since many places in the U.S. shut down due to concerns about COVID-19. The day we recorded the interview for this episode, the WHO had logged the largest number of new cases in one day since the start of the pandemic. 150,000 new cases. That's the size of a small city, all infected. And the fact is that the testing for positive cases is representative of where we were a few weeks in the past. This virus is not going away as promised by our misguided commander-in-chief. As tired as we are of staying home, wearing masks, and wishing for a return to, quote, normal, there is no end in sight. But we still get up in the morning and try to forge ahead, And we must be vigilant about living carefully and about race issues and reparations. It's hard work that we're getting into after a long time of being complacent and lazy. Stay active and stay strong. I spoke last week with Barbara Sibley, the chef and owner of La Palapa in New York City. In the 20 years that she's had her restaurant in the East Village, she's been through a lot of other crises. 9-11, the blackout of 2003, Hurricane Sandy, a gas explosion a block away in 2015, and now the closure and reshaping of her restaurant once again. She is approaching this in much the same way as past upheavals. She's forging ahead, making changes on a daily or hourly basis to best continue to serve her community. Aside from serving takeout to regulars and new customers, she and her team have served more than 17,000 meals to frontline health workers, much as they did after September 11th. And she's having to figure out how to serve and stay open while being asked to enforce rules about drinking in public. Sometimes it takes a step back to take more steps forward. Hi, my name is Barbara Sibley. I'm chef and owner of La Palapa on St. Mark's Place, La Palapa, La Palapa Taco Bar on uh, in Gotham West Market, and La Palapa Taco Bar also in Urban Space Vanderbilt. 
Cool. Thank you so much for taking time out. Uh, today is uh, June 19th, um, and we're speaking by phone because we can't be in the same studio. Uh, for anyone listening to this in the future, uh, it's 2020, and there's still a global pandemic. Uh, the United States is going through some very intense, uh, I guess, soul-searching about how we treat people of color in this country, um, today being an auspicious day uh, related to that. Um, but anyway, I wanted to talk, Barbara, about you and, and sort of your work. Um, so give me a little bit of background. You grew up in Mexico City. When did you come to the United States? Um, I came to the United States um, to go to school and um, came and visited my sister. My sister was at NYU and realized that in New York City, everything in the subway is uh, in Spanish and English. <laughs> And I thought this was a place that I could live. <laughs> sure. So it was sort of interesting because I really, you know, had that feeling where I didn't know where I wanted to go. Um, and uh, the the really just really it was just the subway. The subway uh, was amazing to just be in there and just feel. And even though the Spanish, there were so many different kinds of Spanish. Right. I really felt at home. I felt like, OK, this is a place that I can be. So I grew up in Mexico City. I grew up in a time before NAFTA, before, obviously before the internet, but also it's just, it was a time where Mexico was so closed, it was more like Cuba. And actually Cuba, it's more open because Cuba at that point was open to the world. It was just closed to the United States, mm. whereas Mexico was completely closed. So like culturally, in terms of the food that we ate, in terms of the the, the things that we had in stores and and media, entertainment, movies, everything was dubbed into Spanish a year later. Um, all everything was in Spanish, all the food. So really, even though my parents made sure that we had English because they wanted us to be able to come to school in the States, uh, I grew up very, very Mexican. Hmm. It's very interesting because I, I always think of, you know, Mexico as being, uh, you know, such a close neighbor to the United States. And right. I, and, and my entire life growing up, I mean, I knew kids from Mexico City at camp and I, you know, heard Spanish a lot. I grew up in the New York area. So, I mean, heard obviously different dialects of Spanish, but heard Spanish a lot and never really considered the fact that it was really cut off for, you know, for a much longer time um, than even some other places further away. Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, it was very, it was, you know, you, we came to the States, I think, once every three years, mm. you know, so it was very, very special to come to the United States to see whatever, you know, our relatives here. And so it took me a while to really understand that about myself. Um, my, my first language is a mix of both. I'm most comfortable speaking to people who speak both. Mm. Um, and but it really I had to sort of actually in doing studies of, about NAFTA is actually when I realized, when you're talking about immigration, when I realized that, that that, why I had this sort of dissonance whenever people would talk about, you know, America or about Mexico and just realized that what it is, is that really, even like my niece and nephew who are in their late 20s, like I have a much, had a much more Mexican upbringing than they did. Hmm. Got it. Um, you know, I, and I think it's interesting that, you know, especially in the food world, I think in the last, you know, I mean, for many years, people like Diana Kennedy have done a lot of work, I think, to expose the fact that, you know, here in the States, I mean, when I grew up in the late 70s and early 80s, when we talked about Mexican food, it was like, you know, it was like Taco Tuesday. It was hard shell tacos 
and that was kind of the extent of what we knew as Mexican food. Um, you know, and then I guess you got a little bit into like burritos if you got down to the West Coast. Um, but to really come to understand that there is, I mean, Mexico is a very large country and has a lot of different types of cuisine. Um, and, you know, it seems like that's part of what you bring to the table at La Palapa is bringing those dishes that are truly Mexican, not like what we would call Tex-Mex now or like California Mex. Yeah, well, it's well, really what it is, I have to say, it comes from pure selfishness, because it's really what I was homesick for and what I am homesick for. Sure. That's what drives my menu. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it tends to be very much like home cooking. It tends to be really uh, quite traditional, but I could never get bored doing that. I mean, it's just, it's endless. There's such diversity in terms of all the different areas of the different regions and everything that you can do and every single chile is different also i mean every time you cook it you you know you have to have the palate because every chile is of a different heat and so on and so forth um i think in some ways i never could have had la palapa prior to nafta like i remember when i first came to new york there were only canned tomatillos and if i needed cilantro i would have to go to chinatown wow. and um there were no, you know, there there was no, there were no tortillas. There was, you know, there's really almost nothing here. There was one or there's one store on 14th Street called Casa Moneo and everything was just canned and tasteless. And, and you know, that's all we had. Uh, and so gradually I would go to, well, one place would do enchiladas that were quite normal or good. And one place would have good beans Uh and so on and so forth. And then I, you know, opened La Palapa really to put it all together in, in the plate. Um, and so it has a lot to do with the travels of my childhood. It has a lot to do with even what I would cook at home now, right? If I, uh, if I had somebody brought me some figs and so I made a fig a sauce with the figs, but that, you know, it's very typical. I'm also, I'm an anthropologist. So I'm fascinated by how cultures adapt, how cultures, you know, adopt. And I think that one of the main things is about Mexican cuisine is that they've always been very, uh, had a real ability to just, you know, take whatever was most delicious. I mean, it's really a cuisine that, that uh, I, when I teach it, I like to explain to people that like, it was like, you know, the cuisine that, that Mexico comes from is really like, like the way the internet is to information now, right? That <laughs> the palette of, of traditional Mexican cuisine is like, you know, the Google of tastes because right. you have tamarind from Asia and you have chiles that went around the world. You know, a lot of people don't understand that an habanero, where that an habanero doesn't come from Havana. It mm. comes from Java, 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 Java. It's a, 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 mer a, 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 pepper or chili from the americas that traveled to asia and then came back to the americas to the caribbean so it's it's a javanese pepper but that the way they got it to java was through the the trade of the the uh the china the trade through the whole south asia and the philippines from the west coast of mexico mm. so and then it comes back to mexico on the east coast through the caribbean right so it's just, you know, but a lot of people think it's Havana or they, you know, I would say actually that when my pet peeves, you're asking me one of my pet peeves, yeah. Hab people who say habanero, <laughs> that would be probably one of my very pet peeves. That's right? <laughs> 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 not that. Uh, but no, so I, I'm fascinated by that. But also, you know, there's so much freedom in that. It's just, I could never, ever, 
get exhausted. So I don't really do fusion because I feel it already in, in the history. I feel it in the more traditional food. Like I don't, I don't even need to do that. You know, right. that's, I let other people do that. I'm much more interested. So I said, I could never exhaust what's all, what's, what there is to discover right. uh, in Mexican cuisine. Yeah, absolutely. And what led you into a career in cooking? Well, you know, I'm traditionally, although most people would sort of think I was, they would laugh in my face, but I'm really a very shy person. And so growing up, I was always more comfortable in the kitchen than in the party. Oh. So um, I really grew up in the kitchens. I happen to be a person that I can remember my first avocado uh, I wrote my first recipe when I was six. <laughs> and now that I look at it, it's almost, it must have been like some gratin or something. It's like slightly like a bechamel or something. It's like a little milk. Um, I just love to cook. I love to be in restaurants. I grew up in, in a lot of restaurants in Mexico City. We lived two blocks from a restaurant called the San Angelin, which is a very, be- very beautiful restaurant. Um, we, my father was a displaced New Yorker, so he would take us to restaurants, right? It's a very New York thing. So I think that that sort of is a natural coming home that I've done here in New York. But he, um, uh, we would, we went to, we would go to Cardini's and have the Cesar Cardini, you know, but it was Alex Cardini, Cesar's brother. And we would have the traditional Caesar salad as it was invented, you know? So, uh, and I just, you know, I think you have to love to eat and I have a real food memory. So a big, big part of that, of it was that. And I think that when I came to New York, honestly, I was studied anthropology. I was ready to do a graduate degree. And I realized that what I was thought was a means to an end was what I loved. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, and, and yeah, lucky to have some great mentors along the way. Sure. So, uh, so you opened, uh, La Palapa and, uh, and then opened, uh, so which so the the main restaurant came first, right? Right. And mm-hmm. then uh, Gotham West, and then Vanderbilt, or the other way around. Well, actually, so I so La Palapa, interestingly, so we're in our twentieth year. Congratulations! This that's is like, my twentieth year. That's a big, and it's still it's still fun. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> I'm and, glad it's uh, still fun. I you know I still have a lot of things to cook. Um, then in between, I had a restaurant in, in the West Village for ten years another La Palapa. Mm. And then about uh, five years ago, I opened uh, a taqueria. So just tacos. And that was in urban space Vanderbilt. And then last year I opened in Gotham West market. Got it. Um, and so, and that's been fun because I've always wanted to do just taqueria, which is great. Yep. And then I also, I also run uh, I'm creative director at holiday cocktail lounge, which is a little different sort of goes back to some of my early restaurant days of what I managed. So, and I, um, I manage the 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 um, renovation and re you know restart of Holiday Cocktail Lounge. Got it. So uh, things were going along. You're in your twentieth year, and then suddenly everything closed in March. Right. You know, in in one way, I feel that I was working. You know, if everything that I've done till now was leading to this point, right? I opened in 2000 and then 2001, it's 9-11. Yeah. That was like reopening. You know, I'll never forget. I mean, New Yorkers didn't want to go out. We were below 14th Street. Yep. 14th Street was the was the demarcation of yeah. the people could not come down below 14th Street except walking. So uh, we fed the firehouses and the police precincts as, as, you know, the crews went down to dig in the rubble. We heard the planes. 
Yep. We saw the people, we were already, our crew was already at La Palapa and, and people started knocking, you know, just completely gray head, head from the dust, head yeah. to toe, were knocking for water, knocking for coffee, knocking for a phone line because all of the cell phone lines had been, towers were destroyed. Yep. And, you know, we opened, we opened. And, and at that point, actually, I had a, a, my sister was in town to, to, to have the premiere of her book, Widow Basquiat. And she had a lunch date with a poet, uh, Grace Schulman, who spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. And she's like, Grace, what do we do? And um, Grace Schulman was editor of poetry and for the nation for years, a wonderful poet. And she said, well, in, we're like, what do they do in Jerusalem? You know, thinking like this is our first experience with terrorism. said, yeah. well, in Jerusalem, you keep your lunch date. Huh. And I have to say that that phrase is kind of my driving force and that after Sandy, I iced my entire walk-in that afternoon, and I fed the neighborhood until the lights came back on. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, you know, in 2008, we fed, you know, at the, at the economic crisis, you know, we stayed open. When, you know, there was an explosion of buildings on 7th Street, yep. we had a fundraiser. And so to me, like a restaurant is community. You are on the ground floor. And in New York, you provide, you're the, you are, you know, especially I think maybe as an anthropologist, you know, our lives are, are marked by our rites of passage, right? So it's not, it's not something that is frivolous to say that's where I spent every birthday or that's where I met my loved one. Right. That's part of what makes life meaningful. And so I think that, you know, restaurants in New York have a very, very special relationship to the city. I think that's why when some go out of business, we actually mourn them, right? Absolutely. It's more than just the food. It's, it's, it's the fact that, the, it, that it's a part of us that disappears, a part of the city. And um, so, you know, so I really, I didn't have an option to me to close. So I just, I opened, I just stayed open and I, you know, f- had a lot of food. It was a lot. I, I liken it to the fact that it was a little bit like, if you're on a train and it's a freight train and it's like barreling and you slam on the brakes. So we know what happens so like everything just slams into you. Yep. And then from there on in to now, the tracks turn into a tightrope. Mm. And that's how it's been. Yeah. I, I really, I, I love that description. And I think you hit, you really hit, you know, hit a vein that the, Restaurants really are a you know a piece of the fabric of the community, and that they are almost you know they're they're so much more than a place to eat dinner or a place to eat brunch. Um, and I like that. I like that a lot. The the idea that you keep your you keep your lunch date and and the you know the comparison to nine eleven. Uh, you know, I interviewed uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams a couple of weeks ago on this show. And we were talking about 9-11. I was in New York at that time, and obviously he was. He was a police officer at the time. And we talked a lot about how we're in a very similar kind of mourning period now that will continue. That is what I I remember happening after 9-11. Yeah, Yeah, which is what's happening. I don't know if you remember after 9-11, no one felt... No one felt like they could celebrate, right? This is similar to Sandy, things yeah. like 9-11 particularly. You felt such a sense of mourning that the only time finally people were able to do something, I don't know if you remember, October 11th, there was a Windows of Hope fundraiser. Mm-hmm. 
And it was the only time people felt like they could go out. Similarly, the only time that people felt like they could go out was in large groups for special occasions. And I feel in a way that La Palapa being such a community restaurant, it's a, we're a little bit canary in the coal mine and that you can, I can really sense that, right? How it happens that people feel like they can only go out on the weekends. And for example, a couple of weeks ago, and it made for a, one of the most difficult days in my restaurant career on Cinco de Mayo. Mm. So Cinco de Mayo was the first time that anyone had permission to have fun. Right. And it was insanely hard, difficult, and disastrous for restaurants all over the country. Yep. Because we were all doing this like we never had before, right? We're doing it on Grubhub and, yeah. you know, DoorDash and things are coming at us in 20 directions and there's people waiting outside the door and you're trying to hand it to them and you can't talk to them because you're in a mask and you're in, with a tiny staff because you're supposed to do it with social distancing. So you have the minimum, you know, really, really the absolute minimum amount of people in the, in the building because you can't be close together. Mm -hmm. And, and, and people, and people were desperate and people were, were emotional and if you and people were, were upset if you couldn't do it I was like I can't take another order I can't take your orders like what do you mean <laughs> why because it was so meaningful to them to have to have permission to permission to celebrate yeah it was it I I mean it was such you know after I got over the trauma of not being able to of, of it being not smooth because here you're you know you're used to being able to like give good service and have yeah. enough food and 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 be able to handle all these things and you're like I, we could not handle it it yeah. was so crazy busy uh and and obviously you're also you're when you're dealing with online platforms you don't have just the people in your building you have like the whole world ordering as well as all the people you know and then we had tons of people like trying to order on the street and uh, you know, and had somebody trying to manage the crowds outside and, and people were so emotional, you know, and I felt so bad because I felt like I, you know, I couldn't do, I couldn't take care of everybody uh, in, a, in an emotional sense, right? You just sense that. So I think what's happening right now is similar, right? People are just so desperate for some normalcy and so desperate to, uh, to have fun and to sort of assert life. Uh, it's very, very difficult because the, 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 unfortunately asserting life has meant not following the rules of social distancing. Yeah. And, and, and putting people at risk potentially, I think that's yeah, the hardest, oh, yeah. the hardest piece of it is that, you know, we all kind of want to get back to the way things used to be. And, you know, I mean, I keep thinking about, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how old your kids are. Mine are young still, they're 10 and six. And I keep thinking about this is going to be such a huge moment for them it's it's going to be such a huge moment for them i have 16 and 12 mm. uh they're going to be so marked yeah. uh you mentioned also like just the time right now and the young people right now and 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 it, black lives matter and it being juneteenth juneteenth well if you think about it the young people that are out in the streets now they are the ferguson generation mm -hmm. so when we think about these momentous things that happen in our country Sometimes it's not really the grown-ups that are affected, but it sort of has a delayed reaction. So we don't know what the reaction to this is. I know for little, little kids, there's great concern of not being with other children yeah. and how that, how is that going to be and socialization and all of that. It's, you know, it's, it's intense. Yeah. It's a big question. 
This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. So, you know, as, uh, I mean, I'm sure, you know, as, as someone who's been at this for a long time and, uh, and someone who is, you know, still open during the, the restrictions that we're under, um, what does, you know, what does reopening look like? I mean, you guys obviously are operating well, two of your three locations currently for takeout. Right. Well, you know what? It's interesting. This last week has been incredibly difficult. Uh, it's been incredibly difficult because there's been such a lack of uh, compliance by the general public that they're coming down really hard on restaurants and bars and they're really asking us to enforce. Mm. And so last night, uh, so I'm actually taking a step back. Um, I'm not going to be serving liquor through my front door, Mm. through my window this weekend uh, because they, uh, last night Cuomo's executive order stated that uh, any restaurant is responsible for the 100 feet radius in front of their restaurant. Wow. And uh, already all week long and starting last week, I've been fighting, literally fighting with guests about and saying, you can't drink that, that you're supposed to take it home. You're not supposed to have an open container. Please don't drink it in front of my premises. You're going to get me shut down. Uh, you know, and and try and people not wanting to buy food and so on and so forth. And you have all of these going on things like that, that actually this weekend at downtown on St. Because it's St. Mark's Place, which came yeah. out in the news. And so we're, you know, that's that it is what it is. Yeah. And even though it was not my block, it was the block next to me. It just means that I can't I won't be able to do that. Like, I won't be able to tell people they can't people won't listen to me. Right. I mean, it's and so yeah. I'm just going to choose not I'm choosing to backtrack. It's not like, woo, opening. Yeah. I'm choosing this weekend to backtrack. And if people want if people are home, I'm happy to send them delicious margaritas. And it's really going to be hard on my staff. And so I'll just have to see if my staff can withstand telling people no, because it's like really not what I train them to be. Right. Sure. I train them to be welcoming and hospitable and say yes and let me get you let me find what you need and let me bring you what you crave and um it's going it's very difficult because there's no i've just i've just realized there is no way to control it and if we're responsible for the streets i the only thing i can prove is say like i am not selling so it's not mine so so it's very interesting i don't know i don't know if they could have done something differently um, I, you know, it's, that's just, 
uh, beyond me. I think I think it's just an it's just that it's unpredictable and you don't know how it's going to work out. And I think on paper the phases looked really rational, but I think human beings are more driven by emotion at this point, mm-hmm. and um, the sort of the rational side of it. Is not there, especially when you have so many bars that are not compliant. Right? Yeah, and and I think that you know one of the the problems, of course, with it overall, I think, and I mean, I like I like having a drink as much as anybody else, is that you know alcohol lowers your ability to make good choices and have good judgment. So I feel like, unfortunately, right, right. it's like a compounding problem where someone might oh, be like, oh, I'm just going to have one drink. Absolutely. But then after you have that one drink, it's like, ah, my mask fell down. I don't care. I'm going to have another drink. And then like, it's this cycle. Um, right. And then other people see other people doing it. And we live in a society, unfortunately, where people are constantly comparing themselves to others. So yes, if you see one person do it, then you're like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And if she can do it, they can do it, you know, and so it becomes oh, this, absolutely, you know, absolutely. this yeah, cat- you catastrophic domino. Right. And you see all kinds of people with no mask. I mean, I would say I, I, I don't, I, I, all kinds, yeah. all kinds of people. I mean, I, you know, people are saying, oh, that it's young people. I mean, I did notice early on that it would be often someone who, you know, a couple and they're like, obviously on their first date or something, you know, like there's some like, you know, there's like an emote, like some romance going on and yeah. that was probably getting in the way of, being compliant but now i see it as just like it's really not i i wouldn't i wouldn't stereotype the 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 you know people like to say that it's the young people but i i don't think so i mean yeah. i really i i wouldn't stereotype it at all but uh it's hard i you know i understand it's the government trying you know the city and state government trying to control it um so i know that i can't control it they certainly can't control it I right. certainly can't control <laughs> sure. it. Sure, and and to you put know, you as a you know when it's when it's going to be your license and you're putting your business on the line, uh, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, the reopening on the streets that's great, but it's also very going to be very uneven, right? There are some locations and some businesses that have, you know, I have a bike in uh, a city bike rack in front of my restaurant, so sure. it doesn't make a big difference for me, yeah. right? So we'll see. So I'm actually may may I'm, I'm more nervous now than I was at a certain point right because people's expectations are going to be heightened when we do open at 50 percent I'm taking it really as a creative moment I'm thinking about a lot of things I'm thinking about the menu um there's tremendous we are really really reinventing the wheel on a daily basis every yeah. single day yeah. every single day and I- then obviously the 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 protests and the riot, you know, the looting and the, and the rob. I mean, in my neighborhood, really, it was the, the, anything sort of negative was really had nothing to do with the protests at all. It was people that were uh, absolutely just, you know, mean, nasty people that had nothing to do with protests and petty thieves breaking in, breaking and entering. Right. I mean, it was like a great excuse to break and break and enter. So, um, but you still, you know, we're boarded up. You have to be careful, you know, all of these things. Yeah, it takes um, mental energy so, and physical energy yeah, yeah, and yeah, money exactly. and things to, re- to address you have to reinvent, it. And yeah. you're reinventing the wheel again and you're making sure that everybody leaves very early, even if you have guests, you yep. know, that, you know, you have your staff leaving early enough so that they don't get stopped on the way home. And so that took a lot. So um, it's pretty tiring. Uh, it's been amazing to do the hospital uh, meals. We've done over 15. I think I've done about 17,000 meals and we're still doing about 500 a week Wow. Uh, or more. And um, 
that's been amazing. It was great. It was wonderful working with World Central Kitchen because you just had a sense that they really, it was actually through Bloomberg that they decided to start sending meals to the city hospitals that weren't getting as many donations as the private hospitals. Mm. So it was really an honor to be a part of that. And also to know that the food that I make, which is very home-centered, comforting food, was really going to the right the right place. Um, it started off sort of grassroots with, you know, I know a doctor, I know yeah. a nurse, I know, you know, and then it became, you know, gradually over the weeks, it became really something that was both the grassroots and, you know, institutional philanthropy. And uh, it and it was great. I got a lot of support through, um, you know, friends, you know, who know people, you know, who are, know people at Mount Sinai and saying like the palliative care, like, you know, strange, different um, departments, not just the ICUs, not just the places where people were taking food over and over again, but the other parts of the hospitals, you know, whether it was the IT department at Maimonides, you know, they, yeah. they were also under, on, you know, under tremendous lockdown and stress, even if they weren't actually the, the ICU nurses or doctors. Yep. So it was, you know, it was really understanding. I think it was very hopeful in that it made me really realize like, you know, we can do it. We can make a difference and we can take care of our, our city. And that part of it was tremendously hopeful. But I think about like, you know, the, actually a few like millions of meals have been made in the city for the relief workers. And that is amazing. That is wonderful and amazing. Do you think there's an opportunity for that to continue? I hope so. I learned a lot. I certainly learned a lot. Um, I learned, you know, first of all, it, it reinforced something that I knew already that I have an incredible, amazing, amazing team of humans that I work with. Yeah. Right. They're, they're amazing. Uh, I love them all. They're, you know, they just, we figured out how to do thousands and thousands of meals. You know, it's just like, I was like, yes. And they were like, yes. Okay. How are we, now let's do it. How yeah. are we going to do it? So that was one thing that I, that was just to be a witness to that was just wonderful. Um, and then I think, but in doing that and realize what you can do and how you can do it, it does make me think of like, you know, you really, you know, in the, in the coming year or two or three, there's going to be some real, real deep need in our city for help. And I think that we can do it. I mean, I think that's, it gave, that, give, that gives me hope that I think that at least in terms of my organization and realizing how, what you can do and what you can put together during a pandemic we really should be able to take care of our people, take care of our city. Right. When we're, yeah, when, 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 when someday we're past the pandemic, hopefully we can yeah. take some of this energy and Absolutely. realize that when things are in fact a little easier and maybe a little more profitable, that we can in fact do a lot more than we were. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Or even when things aren't profitable. I mean, yeah. it's like what you can do when things are absolutely the worst possible. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what can we do when, you know, uh, when you when it's the other so yeah and I, and I think we're seeing I mean you know in, incredible changes in the world um, and I think a lot of it is for the better um, you know yeah. things things like Cuomo's executive order about making Juneteenth a state holiday um, yeah you know yeah. Th things like that I think we're people are li I mean there's some listening yeah. happening yeah, definitely. Yeah, now, what about absolutely. on a on a personal level? Is there anything that you're doing differently uh, in terms of like sleep schedule or eating or meditation or anything like that that's helping you in this time? You know, I need help with that. Mm. <laughs> um, 
you know, I have a little terrace, and this afternoon I harvested my first raspberries. Yum. Uh, my meditation, you'll think, is weird in that I like to cook mm. at home. <laughs> because Can't in get the restaurant enough. <laughs> business, when you own your restaurant, you don't ever really do anything from start to finish. Sure. You know, you tend to like, okay, you start this and you pass it on, you start this fast on. So I so maybe people have been making bread. I do not have enough time to watch bread rise. Yeah. Like every time I've tried to make bread, it's either it's gotten overproofed because something has happened. Right. <laughs> so bread is not gonna happen here. I my 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 daughter is like, How can we get through this pandemic? We haven't made sourdough yet. I'm like, honey, <laughs> it's just not it's here here's here biscuits, okay? You know, here's a quick bread. Yeah. Here's a cake, but like regular bread, I we're literally overproofed like three times. I'm like, okay, no, I learned my lesson. <laughs> I've been making marmalade. Oh. That's nice. been that's been what I've been doing. Uh so that's because and that's one of those things that's I'm the only one in the house who loves it. I mean, I have like my niece and nephew love it, but it's really for me. <laughs> so um uh, I've been experimenting with that. So I've made, I just made one that's based on, in Mexico, they make uh, candied lime peels and then they stuff them with coconut. So I made a lime coconut marmalade that I'm about to open up. Ooh, that sounds awesome. And we'll awesome. see how it, how it is. So that's, uh, it's fun. That so sounds totally that, I mean, I, once, mainly right now, it's just, there's not a lot of time. Yeah. So I am sleeping. I'm not sleeping a lot, but there, I have like almost urgent, urgent things to do all the always right you know, because uh there's menus to be written and safety protocols to enforce and yeah you and, know, and you're having and, to be nimble at every everything. turn you have to yeah. Just, yeah you've got it you've got to just you know and now a new executive like i said and, and then deciding oh what's you know how safe do we have to be in terms you know obviously the masks and all that but now yeah. in terms of like okay if i can't control the people on the street what's the best thing to do and you know just trying to trying to uh trying to adapt yep. um it's it's hard it's gonna be it's very hard if we have to if we have to control what people are doing on the streets that mm -hmm. that part of it i haven't figured that out yet um as i said right now for the weekend i'm i'm just sort of changing my model a little bit but i don't know if that'll be sustainable we'll see yeah we'll see um, well, I really, I appreciate, uh, your time today and I wanted, I just have one, one last question. Um, yeah. I mean, we could talk for hours, I'm sure, but you have, <laughs> you have things to do for people who do hear this and who are at home and have some extra time on their hands, even if it's not a complicated recipe, is there a comfort food, uh, from Mexico that you think is sort of appropriate for this time of year and the times that we're in? Well, I think chilaquiles, really, mm. you know, I mean, chilaquiles are so easy and so delicious. So if you, you know, if you make a salsa verde, so I would say six tomatillos, half an onion, two cloves of garlic and two chilies, boil them, blend them in the blender into a sauce, get some tortillas, fry them in oil till crispy, drain them well, and then pour the salsa over it the hot salsa over the chips and let it soak, cover it with grated queso fresco or any cheese, uh, crema, better than sour cream, but if not sour cream, uh, sweet onion and radishes and delicious. And Excellent. delicious for Father's Day coming up actually. Yeah, that sounds great. I think maybe I'll that's, make that on that's, Sunday. It's so easy and so delicious. Awesome. Well, thank you, Barbara. I really appreciate your time today. All right, thank you. Take care. Great, this'll go up on, uh, this'll air on Monday.
Oh, so wonderful. you'll uh, Sherry will get an email and she can pass it on to you. Okay, great. Awesome. Right, Thank you. Nice have a wonderful talking. day and have a good weekend. And I, I hope Thanks. hope things go okay with the yeah. distancing. It'll and be, the... It's a new adventure every day. Yeah, of course. And hopefully yeah. I'll get to come <laughs> and eat at La Palapa in person sometime after this so. is all over. So. Yeah, or I'll send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank okay. you so much. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Right. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Two of Barbara's three restaurants are open for takeout and delivery. You can find more at lapalapa.com. That's L-A-P-A-L-A-P-A.com. And follow on Instagram at la underscore palapa and at Barbara G. Sibley. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Stay safe, wear a mask, wash your hands. Talk to you next week. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.